With the primary election out of the way, we're making a switch on Wednesdays on Today in Ohio. Courtney Astolfi, our City Hall reporter, will be joining us on Wednesdays. We're going to keep the focus on Cleveland for a while. So welcome, Courtney. We're here on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and in addition to Courtney, we have Lisa and Laura. Courtney, looking to have some good conversations with you about the city. Lots of stuff going on there. Yeah, pretty exciting news as the new administration gets its its feet under it, and we, we see what it pursues here going forward. It's a... It's going to be an interesting year, it seems. Courtney was the longtime Cuyahoga County reporter covering all of the foibles of the Armand Budish administration and the tragedies that happened at the jail. So she has familiarity with the county council, which is looking like it might spend $46 million flushing it down the toilet on the medical mart. Destination Cleveland's Dave Gilbert spoke to the council yesterday and said the $46 million is a modest investment. He clearly is not talking to the retirees living on fixed incomes elsewhere in the county who are keep looking at their taxes going up. Uh, Courtney's replacement on the county is going to end up looking at all of the money taxpayers have forked over to help tourism. Those would be good stories to read, eh? Absolutely. So much money's been sunk just into the Medical Martin Convention Center, but there's all sorts of other money out there, too, that's gone to it in ways you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of taxes dedicated to it, and even Dave Gilbert's organization has received millions of dollars in subsidy. Taxpayers deserve to know how much of their money is going to this as the county council prepares to flush another $46 million. I should say... Rarely have I heard from the community in such unanimity that they don't want that money spent on the medical mart. They're dead set against it. So it's bizarre that once again, the county council is not hearing taxpayers. And this is going every time you buy anything in Cuyahoga County. It's what, a quarter quarter percent of the sales tax, right, is going to this? I mean, that the commissioners passed years and years ago without a, a vote. So every time you buy anything, that money is going to the medical mart. And plus the, the hotel yeah. tax, yeah. plus the right. ticket taxes, plus parking taxes. There's a whole bunch of taxes that go toward tourism. So it's really inexcusable to make it sound like $46 million is a modest investment. Let's get to our stories. Did the state school board go with the guy who had the enormous conflict of interest to become the new state superintendent? Lisa, this one's yours. Yes, they did. They picked Steve Dakin uh, to head up the State Board of Education. I'm sorry. Let me back up. Steve Dakin was approved by the State Board of Education yesterday as the new superintendent of public instruction. It was a 14 to 5 vote. There was one abstention. Uh, one of the other finalists, Larry Hook, a superintendent from the Springboro area, got three votes. Thomas Hostler, who is from Perrysburg, a superintendent there, got zero votes. Um, so, you know, he despite conflicts of interest, obvious conflicts of interest, he was picked by the board in, in an overwhelming fashion. The Board of Education President, Charlotte McGuire, says Dakin didn't see any of the other applications or documents that board members also didn't see, and they said that most of Dakin's work was in hiring the private search firm to search for the new superintendent. They claimed that his experience was a standout, and they hope that he gets to work soon. He will make $215,000 a year. He'll get a five hundred and fifty dollar a month car allowance or a state vehicle and uh, up to thirty five thousand dollars in an annual performance bonus educators and teacher groups are applauding this because they were afraid 
we would get one of the CRT demagogues or the religious kind of crazies in the seat. And that's not who he is. He's an educator. But it, it seems strange to me that that they're accepting the huge conflict of interest he had because they didn't want what could be worse. So so we accept somebody who gets the job through very questionable methods and applaud it because it could be so much worse. It seems like that's the way we repeatedly lower our bar and our thresholds in this state. But we really don't know, at least I've not seen any reporting on Dakin's, you know, policy stances, quite frankly. I mean, he did vote to rescind that anti-racism resolution that was passed, that was rescinded last October. He did vote for that. He is a registered Republican in Franklin County, but we really, I have not seen anything about his stance at all. We do know that Larry Hook was kind of anti-CRT and maybe a little bit extreme for the job, so. Well, the educators seem to believe he's focused on education. They're, they, 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 again, maybe they're just trying to, you know, extend the olive branch or something, but they seem genuinely happy to get somebody with an education background in charge of the state's schools. Time will tell if he does a good job or not. It was certainly questionable how he got the pick. It's today in Ohio. One of Cleveland's longest-term successes has been its tax abatements for new homes and heavily renovated homes, which attracted a lot of people to city living. The program resulted in a lot of lost taxes, though, and now the city is making some changes. Courtney, it's a big deal to change this program because it has been so successful. What are the changes and what drove them? Yeah, so lots of changes. So the the policy that's been in effect for the last 10 at least years has been a 100% tax abatement for 15 years. No matter what development, no matter what kind of housing, it's just this one-size-fits-all policy. And You know, housing advocates, thinkers, even people in the city have started to think that's not stoking the kind of investment we want to see. So to combat that, they're they're establishing a more tailored approach. There's going to be three different market types across the city, depending what neighborhood you're in. And and each market type is going to get a different level of abatement. So so that's one way to kind of tailor it to individual market conditions in each neighborhood. Another another change here is the full 100% abatement is going to be available for large-scale apartment buildings, four or more units, and and those those abatements are are meant to stoke affordable housing citywide because the city in this plan is putting requirements down that you must include affordable housing units within these big de- developments. So that's that's aimed at getting more affordable housing all throughout the city. And I think what's really interesting with that piece of this proposal is that if developers of those buildings don't want to make some of their units affordable, they can pay into a city trust fund that's going to be used to fund affordable housing initiatives all over the city. So that community benefits type agreement is, is brand new and housing advocates are kind of excited for that. You know, one other big change here too is tax abatements are capped when you reach the first $350,000 of home value. Right now, you know, a million dollar home could theoretically get an abatement. The city didn't think that was a good way to go forward. They don't really need the help. So cap it at that $350,000 level. That's a big deal. The cap is a big deal. I am still surprised, though, that they didn't just end abatements in University Circle and Tremont in Ohio City. 
clearly you don't need inducements to get people to live there. Those are very, very desirable neighborhoods now. And why should developers get the extra cash when they're already going to make a fortune for what they sell there? Was there any discussion on just abolishing them in the in the most profitable neighborhoods? You know, we haven't seen this move to council yet where a lot of those discussions are going to come out and be, be had across the city. I will say there's been this coalition working for several years uh, comprised of like 20 different organizations around here. And I talked to one of their representatives yesterday, and, and and they're pretty pleased with the way the city policy shook out. They said it was pretty responsive to all their research into how to make this policy better. So those advocates, it, it seems, are on board with this approach. Well, I, although 90% is still a gigantic abatement, why not 50% or 40%? Or, or I don't know, maybe they're seeing trends that make them think that development will slow down in the few remaining places left in in the more lucrative districts anyway good policy it's good time to to rethink it it has like i said brought a lot of people into the city of cleveland and resulted in a lot of investment you're listening to today in ohio why did the ohio supreme court split four to three in confusing opinions over what seems like a simple case of manslaughter in cleveland laura this really was a confusing case that shouldn't have been yeah i don't I don't understand why it's so confusing or controversial, why it came down to a 4-3 decision, because this is all based on whether you can you can use your gun, even if you're not allowed to use a gun, if the crime has nothing to do with the reason your gun was taken away, which you, you can, it's still involuntary manslaughter. So this case involves the 2018 shooting death of a guy named Gary Dickens in Cleveland, and a jury found that Jeremy Crawford was not guilty of felony murder in this case, but convicted of involuntary manslaughter. There was no proof that he fired the shot that killed Dickens from his gun. He fired shots in the air, but the conviction relies on the notion that Dickens would not have died if Crawford had not fired his gun, and Crawford was not allowed to have a gun because of a prior drug conviction. And he argued that the his conviction was inappropriate because he was stripped of his right to legally possess a gun because of that drug conviction, and that's unrelated to the death. But the four Republicans on the Supreme Court, just like the appeals court and the trial court, basically said, nope, you couldn't have a gun. This this uh, conviction stands. It seems like it's pretty cut and dried. Yeah, He's not I supposed agree. to have a gun. He fired a gun. Whether he killed the person or the person that fired in response to him firing the gun killed somebody. So you are the proximate cause of a death. That's the definition of involuntary manslaughter. I, I'm not sure why the three judges... Dissented. It seems like this should have been a slam dunk. Like, yes, it's involuntary manslaughter. You lose. Next time when you're not supposed to have a gun, don't don't have a gun. And if you have a gun, don't shoot the gun. You know, pretty pretty easy. Right. One. Don't kill people. That's great. But um Donnelly wrote this dissent. They the three Democrats agreed with the majority opinion in theory, but they thought the facts of the case indicated neither Crawford nor his gun caused Dickens' death. So they don't say, hey, it's okay that he had a gun, but they say, I don't think that they proved that he caused the death with his gun. Okay, strange one. It's Today in Ohio. Is the third time the charm for the Ohio Supreme Court's threat to hold Republican leaders in contempt of court for repeatedly refusing to follow the law and draw voting districts that are not gerrymandered in their favor. Lisa, we talk about this, you know, will they be found in contempt and what does that mean? 
This seems like the big standoff coming soon. Coming tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, as a matter of fact. Uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor ordered redistricting commission members to argue why they shouldn't be held in contempt. And this was after requests from two of the plaintiffs' groups. Um, they are seeking the contempt you know, uh, ruling after new maps were not passed. Uh, the last time they threatened contempt was back in April 14th. It didn't happen. Uh, one of the plaintiffs, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which is the the edit the Eric Holder group says the Supreme Court should set a May 15th deadline to approve maps and if they don't then the commission should pay legal fees the Ohio Organizing Collaborative another plaintiff says that that the commission should be fined $10,000 a day and order daily meetings of the commission and set a May 19th deadline so we'll see what happens tomorrow they've been reluctant to hold them in contempt up to this point but I think they may have reached their limit here Unless they have deputy sheriffs in the room to haul them off to jail, I don't think the contempt citation is much of a threat. If you if you say the commission has to pay a fine, the individual members aren't going to be fined, right? They're not going to have to dig into their pockets. Nobody would do that, God forbid. So it would be tax money that they're fining them. I mean, the only way to compel them to draw maps is to lock them up in a cell, and it does not seem like that's ever been a possibility. So it, it, is this just the Supreme Court being disrespected and trying to maintain some sort of respectability by not getting trod all over? Well, I think that, you know, uh, Matt, I always get their names, Matt Huffman and Bob Cup. I think they've, they flouted, you know, the Constitution. They flouted propriety throughout the redistricting process, which is why we're here now. So I can't imagine that they're going to, you know, roll over at any time soon, if at all. And they're saying that the previously rejected map, let's kind of set the table. So the fifth set of maps that was thrown out by the Supreme Court was just like the third set of maps that were an illegal gerrymander. But uh, the Republicans on the commission say that approving this previously rejected map is not a slap at the Supreme Court, but it was too late to meet the state elections calendar, which is why they pushed through an illegal map. It was just completely bogus. And let's face it, Cup and Huffman, seeing this showdown coming, both took themselves off the commission. So if the commission yeah. is found in contempt, they won't be the ones that are liable. And if, if you know, miracles happen and they locked them up in a jail cell, Cup and Huffman would not be there because they checked out and stuck some other flunkies in to do their bidding. Sad, but we'll, we'll know more tomorrow. Well, we may know more tomorrow. Sometimes the court takes a while to rule. It's today in Ohio. What does it say about how a neighborhood feels about police when people use the site planned for a new police headquarters as a huge and illegal trash dump? Courtney, it's a simple story, but the pictures do tell the story. Ever since they announced that that's going to be the police station headquarters, people have been dumping trash there. Yeah, folks should really check out the photos from our photographer, Josh Gunner. He went out there and he just found tons of garbage on the site along Opportunity Corridor. Um, you know, the 187,000 square foot police headquarters is supposed to open there in 2026. It's already, you know, a staging ground for construction. There's equipment out there. Trees, shrubs are, are stacked and, and waiting for planting. But interspersed between all that is is just this garbage. And, you know, yeah, it could be a statement about 
what the community thinks of of police and in the building project. It could also just be a continuation of the illegal dumping problem we, we frankly have all over Cleveland. You know, council members routinely bring up trash mounds on this property in their ward. There's trash over there. The city's mechanisms for taking care of that trash, council members aren't satisfied with it. So who knows what the statement is there? You know, that I saw this. The reason we did this is I was driving by and I saw the mounds of trash. But I can tell you that when Opportunity Carter first opened, that trash, I don't think, was there. The The site was pretty clear. It was marked for a police headquarters. So it's either Opportunity Carter has made it a lot easier to get to it and dump stuff there, or people are making a statement about the police. It, if, if I were the city, I'd be worried about this because it really is a sign of disrespect for the police that their new home is loaded with trash and it's a lot of trash and broken glass and tires and when you drop by you can you can see it and um, I, I just will wonder what they do I noticed in their statement to you they didn't address the fact that it's at the police headquarters they just talked about the the general problem of trash dumping yeah the, the mayor's spokeswoman said she'd have to get some details on that site in, in particular but she just kind of spoke generally about illegal dumping problems in Cleveland in general. Well, the details are on the front page of The Plain Dealer today and all over cleveland.com. She doesn't have to look far. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Have people returned to libraries in the numbers that were visiting before the pandemic changed everything about life in America? Laura, we know people love the libraries here. They mm-hmm. vote for all the taxes. They're, we have two of the the most respected library systems in America, the Cuyahoga County Library System wins awards every year. But the pandemic really cut back on how people engaged. Are they back? They are back, but most of them not to the same numbers that they were in 2019. And think about it, you know, life changed for everyone forever. And Hallie Rich, the spokeswoman for Cuyahoga County Public Library, said that she said the pandemic fundamentally changed life for many people, just as healthcare and education and retail and food service and virtually all other industry has seen changes, so too have public libraries. And what I gotta say is I used to go to the library probably weekly. You know, I'd put whatever I wanted on hold, I'd go pick it up, I'd read my books, I'd have to take them back you know, just before they were overdue. And think about it. I went to eBooks when the libraries closed and you could not get books. Eventually, remember, they they would bring them out to your car, but they had like a five-day quarantine because nobody knew how long COVID lived on paper. And with an eBook, you get it automatically. It returns itself automatically and you never have to go to the library. So that's cut down on visits for a lot of people. Digital downloads of movies and songs is up. And they do author visits by Zoom. They do kids book clubs by Zoom. And even though they reinstated in-person programs, they haven't gotten rid of those virtual ways to interact too. So I'm not sure that we'll ever see the same number that we used to. Do you think part of it is that there's still the nervousness of getting into confined spaces with others? I mean, I think that's a possibility. And I think people certainly with um, immune systems that are, are more sensitive, 
they probably are. For me, that's not a concern at all. My daughter went to book babble last night at the library. I just think that there's a lot more ways to get the services, and it's so much more convenient than having to go to the library. Our library put out a storybook walk um, every week, I think now, and it's like you can walk around on the sidewalk and read the book. And you know, we talked for a while about how internet access people were using the libraries for that, and it's just it's no longer a place where you just check out books, right? I think our libraries are right; they are incredible. And they have all sorts of great programs for, for education and job searching and, and you know, maker spaces. So it's just, I think it's just constantly evolving. And, and Alexis Oatman wrote the story. She has some very specific numbers in here for all the different uh, library systems that we have. But we're just not quite seeing, um, of course, we're only partway into 2022. So we don't have full numbers to compare. But um, people are back. They're just not back quite as much. I think everybody's trying to figure out what the new normal will be. We're, mm-hmm. we're emerging from the pandemic to the endemic area. I mean, today is the first day that our news team will be together for the first time in 26 months as we return to the newsroom one day a week so that we get that, that in-person connection. Have no idea how that's going to go. Have no idea how it will evolve. Uh, and I think the libraries are doing what everybody else is doing, trying to be ready for what, whatever comes interesting times it's today in ohio what are the findings of a study of how long it takes people to get evaluated for chest pains in hospital emergency rooms and lisa i don't think anybody will be surprised to hear there are different treatments for different people The study from the American Heart Association showed that women aged 18 to 55 waited longer in emergency rooms with chest pain complaints than men in the same age group. They also got a less thorough evaluation for a possible heart attack. But to be fair, but ER people should know this, that heart attack symptoms for women are very subtle and they are different for men's men's symptoms you know you see the on tv people clutching you know their left arm goes numb they clutch their chest they have a heart attack with the women you know they may have nausea they may have shortness of breath they may have back or jaw pain dizziness or lightheadedness and maybe an er physician overlooks these symptoms or doesn't think it's a heart attack this study also found that people of color both blacks hispanics and others 89 percent waited longer than white adults about 10 to 15 minutes longer in an er before getting evaluated but once they were seen, people of color received similar evaluation and treatment, except, you know, for that longer wait. Chest pain is a result, uh, it, it's a symptom in $6.5 million, $6.5 million ER visits a year. Yeah, the, the frightening thing, though, is we constantly see this, this disparity based on race. We see it in child mortality. We see, I mean, every time we look at the medical establishment, we find that exists. And even though the medical establishment keeps saying, yeah, we got to fix this, it doesn't seem like it ever gets fixed. No. And it, but it's interesting. Once they were evaluated, once they were seen, they got similar treatment and evaluation, but they had to wait 15 minutes longer. So, yeah, they get pushed to the back of the line in the ER. And 15 minutes when you're having heart issues can be the difference between life or death. So mm-hmm. chilling statistic. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much time will a chief confederate of the criminal former Cleveland City Councilman Ken Johnson serve in prison? And yes, Laura, I said Ken Johnson. I didn't screw it up this time. Courtney. (laughs) 
Yes, Robert Fitzpatrick, who was involved in the Johnson case, he's not going to prison. He got, he got three years of probation, and he'll serve the first six months on house arrest. Now, now Fitzpatrick had pled guilty to conspiracy in this scheme where Johnson was saying Patrick was working for him, paying him $1,200 a month, and then Johnson got got the money. Um, this was through a city discretionary fund for council members. Now, what I think is really interesting about his sentencing is Judge Adams down in down in Akron, you know, federal sentencing guidelines put his penalty at potentially 10 to 16 months. The U.S. attorneys prosecuting the case asked for less below that because Fitzpatrick had cooperated pretty much from the very beginning in this case. And, and the judge granted him that lesser sentence because of that cooperation and also because of his personal history with with the former councilman. You know, Johnson took Fitzpatrick into his home as a teenager. He, he you know, Fitzpatrick had a, a city job. He, he didn't have much um, leverage there is pretty much what the judge was saying. Well, he was manipulated into this position. Think about how diabolical this is by Ken Johnson. He brings a kid into his home, an impressionable kid, and grooms him to be ultimately the fulcrum for corruption. To, to, so he brings him in, this kid, provides him a home, and gets him set up in a job telling him it's all okay. It's okay to do this. You know, I'm, I get the money. Just, you know, file the paperwork. I mean, that, that is diabolical. That, that takes years of planning to do. Uh, and that's why Ken Johnson was such a monstrous city councilman. He used that position to enrich himself and did things with a very long view. So it's, it seems unsurprising that the court would show some sympathy to this guy because he, he was brought in when he was young and impressionable. Yeah, it, it, this this makes me real sad. It, it it's cruel what what happened to this man. You know, the judge even said prosecutors had thrown out there. Well, you know, potentially Fitzpatrick could have come forward even sooner and more of his own accord. And the judge said, "quote Who would have believed him? Who who would he have turned to?" Well, look, we started reporting on this stuff, and it took the council president forever to get this thing under control. I mean, nobody was doing their job to curb Ken Johnson's theft of money and services but man this is a this is a sad case it's nice that he's not going to prison you're listening to today in ohio was a ruling involving a proposed 180 million dollar first energy settlement as part of its massive corruption scheme a turn of the screw or is it a big move to finally resolve this thing laura it is not resolved. Sorry. We're going to still be hearing about this for a long time. Uh, they still need to add in cases in the Northern District of Ohio, because this is in the Southern, and the Summit County Court of Common Pleas. However, this is U.S. District Judge Algernon Marbley, which to me sounds like the protagonist from a 19th century novel. But um, he's granted preliminary approval to this $180 million settlement. This is the derivatives lawsuit we've talked about before. It's between First Energy shareholders and a group of executives who ran the utility. So the money actually goes back to the company and it's paid out by the insurance. So Marbley says, this is the first step in extensive and searching judicial process, which may or may not result in final approval of a settlement in this matter. Okay, so not settled, <laughs> not dragging settled. on. I mean, 180 million. This is, I mean, that's a large amount of money. We, you know, we talk in millions of dollars all the time, but this is huge. But it's not the same. It's not equal to how much money 
they probably lost because of all of the corruption. And in the Northern District, Judge, Judge John Adams, who Courtney was just talking about, and is he's been very vocal saying, why are you settling this now? You haven't even had time to depose. You haven't been able to depose people. And he's the one who very notably stood up and said, I want to know who did the bribing. So I don't, this is not going away anytime soon. I don't think this is the total amount we're going to see. And one of these days, we expect, we're going to see more people get indicted, although the prosecutor's office has dragged its feet. It's today in Ohio. Well, like I said earlier, we're going to be back in the newsroom together for the first time in 26 months today. Courtney, you excited about that? Oh, I can't wait to see my colleagues. It'll be nice to be back in a newsroom. Laura? I mean, there's pizza, right? There's a pizza lunch. <laughs> so I'm all good when I don't have to make lunch. And Lisa, are you going to join us? I am. I mean, it, I, I, it's, it was exciting on St. Patrick's Day when you did your last hurrah at 1801 Superior. It was very exciting to see a full newsroom. I'd never seen that before. So yeah, it'll be fun. I agree, Lisa. I feel like this space is a little bit smaller than our cavernous two-story newsroom and I think it'll feel really tight-knit and I'm just like excited to watch other people work like I feel like you learned so much about what's happening in the world just from overhearing conversations and and phone calls well to give it a little magic I surprised everybody this morning I tracked down a copy of a surprise greeting for when people originally went to the Tiedemann facility when it opened in 94. None other than Bill Clinton in a one-minute salute to the plane dealer for the investment there. I don't think anybody was quite ready to see that when they opened their email this morning. Fun stuff. That does it for today's episode. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to discuss some more news. 